Ryan Bloomer founded the venture capital firm K50 six years ago after building two companies, an accelerator, a venture studio, and a founder community. With K50, Ryan had an ambitious goal in mind, betting on startups building a better future for the 99% in the US and Latin America. Since then, K50 has invested in no less than 180 startups with pre-seed and seed rounds in sectors such as finance, healthcare, and future of work. Fintual, Frubana, Osana, and Tool are some examples of K50's thesis in action. Today, Ryan and I talk about his trajectory up to K50 Ventures and on what startups and founders the firm bets inside the early stage space. Why Ryan started a founder community back in 2008, how it followed a decentralized support model, and the thesis of investing in diverse geographies. Ryan's vision on valuations for early stage startups, the drive for solving huge problems and creating a legacy, and the one investment that exemplifies K50's thesis. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Ryan, well, good to have you, man. Uh, last time I saw you, we were both in Guatemala. Correct, Amundo. What a beautiful place. It was beautiful, right? That whole old city, it was a fun event. Great folks there that we were able to connect with. And I know you brought a lot of your portfolio companies. You invited them as well, right? At that event. Yeah, we had about... 18 founders. That's awesome. It's great to get everyone together. And uh, I want to dive into a bunch of stuff with you. And that could be a good segue into just like community because, you know, you started a community back in, you know, 2008. But before that, let's, uh, let's just double click a little bit more on your background. Before starting uh, K50, you founded a couple companies, you know, worked worked at another company. You had an accelerator, Momentum, and the venture studio, Kairos. How did those experiences help you become a better investor in startups? If you could just share a little bit more. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I was a founder coming out of, of school, and, and that's actually, you know, where my paths originally crossed with the community. Um, my friend and friend of friend was creating was creating Kairos um, and Kairos was built to be a community to focus the next generation of founders on really solving problems that matter. Um, we grew from just in the U S to, to over 39 countries. And we saw some incredible founders in the community raise billions of dollars in venture capital, um, really 5 billion plus um, with companies like Brex and oil rooms and Freenome and fiscal note Casper Kind of leading the charge there, I met a lot of those those guys in the beginning um, when when I was coming out of school. They were creating a company too, and I think every experience up into the point where we started the venture platform for, which is now K Fifty Ventures, um, which is what I run and my partners run a venture studio called Kairos um, HQ really helped kind of lead me to create what what we've done so far, which is like a first check uh, investment firm. Um, and I can share more about that. I'm sure you're going to ask a, a, a few more questions there. Um, and a community that found, where founders would get you know really true value out of at the very earliest stage. So as a founder, I have empathy for other founders that are that are out there creating companies. I know how hard it is. Um, I've had success. I've had like complete failure. And then I've also learned what it takes to, to scale um, from a few of the companies I worked with. JumpTap, we, we did quite well. We ended up selling to, uh, to a, a group called Millennial Media. 
for about half a billion dollars. I was very close with the founding team there, although I was just an employee. And at Bloomberg Capital, um, I was lucky enough to to be on the ground floor of of, of some incredible companies. Um, we were seed investors, so Bloomberg is a uh, billion dollars under management. Um, I uh, I worked with uh, the three partners there um, at the time, and really really working with David um, probably the most, uh, David Bloomberg, and saw companies at seed that went off to go an IPO three companies in fact that we invested in at at seed while I was there that that ended up IPOing double verify braze and Nutanix um, and got to see what it takes to create that culture that initial team um, and how you know an idea and a mission can turn into multiple different products um, and you know, five thousand plus employees, um, IPOing, um, pretty incredible to see to see that and and see it go from idea to to IPO. Um, I think all that has really helped me understand how to be helpful to founders, how to be empathetic to founders in the very beginning, um, and really how to be there. You know, like I, I always call it, like a sixth man um, for like a basketball term of you know being that. Um, that person that's that's on the team, that's on the bench, that can help and come in and, and help out where where necessary it, it, at the, at the very very beginning, and really kind of roll up our sleeves um, and help these companies, um, which uh, which I think every founder really needs at the very beginning of their journey. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because one of the things that's difficult for a lot of investors is that elusive product market fit stage, right? Where, you know, you come in really early and there's just, there's only so much you can do as an investor in the beginning because until the company's really, you know, figured out those critical pieces that are going to enable the company to scale, you know, you mentioned three companies that at Seed, you know, they ended up IPOing. At that early stage, was it really clear that there was product market fit for those companies? And how do you jump in as a, as a six-man when those those companies are still teetering on figuring out really what their customers need and what they're, what's going to be the the X factor for them scaling and becoming a big company. Yeah. So by and large, the three companies that I mentioned, and I would say any of the companies that, that are in our portfolio that we invested even at pre-seed and are now worth a billion plus, um, there was no product market fit. I would say that it was it was very very early because we truly are first first check investors. Um, some of the companies will invest in seed, um, but for the most part, you're seeing the kind of you're you're either meeting them before they actually create a product, um, or or with very little data, um, and it's really uh, so that, so it's really truly that early. Um, the, I think the thing that was constant across every single company that I've, that I've seen that have, uh, that have done well, um, and have created beautiful products that have scaled and, and now have on their second or third product within their company. It's all about the team. Um, and, for us, we really 
are digging into that problem founder fit. So the team that's the right team to go out and solve the problem that they're trying to solve. For instance, the three companies I mentioned at Bloomberg, and this is very different than the types of companies that we're investing in today at K50, um, these were all very technical problems. Um, the Nutanix team was going out there and cr creating a product for a technical problem that existed in large technical companies because they did it at, at Google. Um, so they had built this product at Google and were basically spinning out of Google to go and build this product and offer it as, as a solution for many different companies. Um, whether that, whether they were tech or, you know, um, for the technical departments of fortune 500 companies, um, they were the right founder to go out and solve that particular problem. And they had done it before. Um, when we're talking about um, a company, for instance, and uh, I'll talk about a company in Latin America because it, it makes the most most sense for the listeners. Um, let's let's say Frubana. Frubana was founded um, by a great founding team and headed by uh, Fabian Gomez, who's uh, before was a country leader. Um, at Rappi and knew what it took to build a marketplace from zero um, because he had gone out and been the GM for different countries that Rappi was expanding into. And this was, this was back in 20, um, 2016, 2017. Um, he was at McKinsey before and he knew what it took to build a marketplace from scratch, which is typically the hardest part um, to, to build a, a particular marketplace. Um, and the marketplace that he was building for were different restaurants that needed, that needed access to fresh quality ingredients um, at great prices. And so it was a, a problem that he knew uh, pretty intimately. Um, it was a mission that he's consistently tr tried to drive towards, um, which is really helping out the mom and pop shop, um, which is what he really liked at Rappi. And he knew these restaurants very well, very different problem that Rappi was solving for these restaurants, which was more on the demand side. But what he learned was that a lot of these restaurants had these big problems that existed in their supply chain. So Fabian was the perfect person to go out and solve that. No one was doing it at the time. There was a couple of companies that were doing it in India and China and the US, and he had studied those models. And so for us, this was before Y Combinator, for us to put a check into Furbana, into that type of founder, um, made a lot of sense for us. And so I think those are the types of teams that we're trying to invest and bet on. Um, and that is most of what we do is finding founders that are trying to go out and solve um, a particular problem that they're super passionate about, that they have experience with. Um, and, um, you know, the leap 
right? For us as an early stage investor, and I would say this for any angel investor that's out there that's that's investing, you know, whether it's five, ten k to hundred k into a company before they've actually created a product, is can you see this founder? Do you believe in the problem that they're solving in the market opportunity? Is it big enough? And then do you believe that the next step of what they're going to need to, to, you know, prove was that there is an actual problem that exists? Like if you, if you can already prove that in one meeting with the founder, you basically have underwrote that they, these guys can easily get to their next round of capital because all they're going to have to prove with their next round of capital is that they can build a little bit of technology and can actually deliver the product. And you've already proven that the large, you know, outsized opportunity exists. So it's really execution at that point. And if you can do that for, you know, if you can make enough investments, you can diversify a lot of your risk out. And so really you're bet you're what you're betting on is execution. Um, all the other stuff about the problem exists, the, you've, the opportunity is huge and the founder is the right fit. If you can prove those three things. I think you've really, you've really out, you've really kind of underwritten most of the risk out of, 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 uh, being an angel investor. And that's what we do at scale and as an institutional fund. Yeah. Francho, I remember, I also, I recall that he had some kind of also particular insight from his family and in, in the business or something. I can't remember, but I remember meeting farming. With farming. Yeah. So they had a farming background and in-, in agriculture. So he knew the supply chain and how fragmented it was and then he being the mckinsey guy made it really clear to investors the waterfall of the different um prices and you could see that okay like okay clearly you can make up 20 to 30 percent 20 to 30 percent of all this spend that these restaurants are spending is 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 garbage it's all middlemen and and uh and 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 just expense expense and exhaust um that uh, now that they that they've capitalized on and and they they started off in Colombia they expanded to Mexico but their biggest market now is Brazil so yeah um, just, I, it's one of those deals started. where Simon from Rappi told me about it I'm like hey what's a good company and, and he told me about it and I I was light on liquidity at the time and I didn't have enough cash but I met with Francho and I was like oh this seems like a, a really and I couldn't, I couldn't scrape together the the money. It, probably in the best in the round that you invested in. It, I think that they didn't have anyone on their cap table yet, uh, and they were just raising their initial capital. So, unfortunately, I missed out on that one. But um, very impressive what he's been able to build. And, and congrats! I think it's going to end up becoming a great investment for for K fifty. Let's talk a little bit more about K fifty. It's, it's evolved into this venture capital firm, but. What, from what I understand, it's actually a continuation of the K50 community, which started, I don't know, back in 2008. If I, if I, if my my research is correct, is that correct? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so we started the community back in 2008. Again, as I mentioned before, to focus the really the next generation of founders. So, um, who are who are going to be that the next Mark Zuckerberg's um, on solving problems? that matters. So solving real problems for real people around the world. Um, we, we grew from, you know, just being in the U S um, to over 39, you know, countries. And we saw thousands of founders, um, come through the community and raise $5 billion plus in venture capital and kind of the common theme or thread, um, that we saw with founders. So in 2016, we said, okay, 
we need to turn this into a venture fund. Like, first of all, it's, it's really hard business to keep a community up and running as, as you know. Um, and if they're and and the monetization layer ends up being funding, but what we realized was we had the track record and really this huge community. So we knew the startup venture ecosystem. We had the track record of, of curating and really a process of, of curating a small group of founders or 50 companies every, every year we would invite 50 companies to come and present at our summit. And then over the, over the, over the year, we would, we would, you know, help develop an even larger community to really help kind of get them ready to, at, at the, at the end of the year at the, for the summit to be able to, to, to get into the summit to, to present as a, as a K-50 company. Um, and we would invite all the, all these really great press and, and investors and, and kind of business leaders of today, what we realized is like every single one of the, those those founders, they had a tough time raising their first fund and even raising their first initial capital. And I think any founder would say that the first couple rounds of capital are always super hard. You're having to go to your friends and family, and then now that now that there's actual pre seed, you typically don't have to have a, a rich uncle or a rich father, mom, or someone in your family that has made a lot of money. So it, it, it has democratized uh, entrepreneurship, which has been, which has been really great. Um, but even for even today, um, especially in emerging markets, it's still very uh, limited in terms of the, the folks that you can go to to raise money. In. And I think what you guys are doing is, is absolutely incredible and plays into this a lot, which is like giving them an access point um, to be able to get in front of a lot more VCs. But I think you and I both know that the law that, and it's funny cause like I've been in communities for venture managers as well. And I always go in thinking I want to raise capital, but the, but the biggest value that comes out of it is the community that you meet of founders and that camaraderie that you have of starting a company with another person in that cohort um, and for somebody to say, I went through latitude 12, I, I, I don't even know how many, how many you've done to this point, but I, I at some point it'd be, I, I went to latitude 199. Um, and the guy that went through the latitude number one is helping that founder go through and, and solve some of these particular challenges. And so we felt like our edge is going to be we know how to build community. We would, you know, we'll continue to double down on it. And oh yeah, we'll also bring all of this community that we had created from 20, 2008 all the way to now um, to really help founders get an edge um, when it comes to just not making the same dumb mistakes that other founders have made in, uh, in their past. And I think that that's what we do, right? As it, as venture investors, we help them not make mistakes. We help troubleshoot mistakes before they before they occur. Um, and the community really helps do that, drives value, builds network. It's also freaking lonely building a company. Um, as a single founder, it's extremely lonely. Even when you have a couple of co-founders, it's still lonely. Um, for the CEO, for the CTO, they're both doing their own thing. Um, it's good to have other people that have done it before that you can talk to. Um, and the community really helps drive that, I think. And I'm sure you've seen this at Latitude. Hey there. 
Are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. Community is kind of buzzy right now, and it's been buzzy, you know, last couple of years. It's, it's become more of something that's more talked about. And, and But, you know, you started in 2008. And so what was the insight? I mean, you know, the w- reason why we started Latitude is because that it's kind of the community I wish I had when I started, which all the founders of Latitude feel like the importance of having that, that support network. But in 2008, we're talking about a decade and a half ago. Was there any other particular insight and, you know, was, was there an idea of what the community would evolve to? Because there's one thing that Sahil Lavingia says, he joined a, an angel session and he said, first you build the community, then you listen to the community, then you solve problems for the community. Did you have that awareness when you started solving a community or, or creating a community? Was there something that you, you know, that you thought it would become or was it just because of something you wanted to kind of support and give back? So really, truly, we started the community to do two things. One, support the next generation of founders, which included us. So we were building the community for us. Um, and two, we had this idea of what if the uh, leaders of today were friends 20, 30 years ago? What problems could they have solved and how would the world look differently? So those two things, I think, really helped us develop a really incredible community that people wanted to be a part of this mission to really solve some of the world's biggest problems. Um, as we continued to build the community, we realized that the community itself had all of these different problems that they wanted solved for them. So one of the to get to your point, which is, you know, what were the different insights that we had learned? The biggest insight that we had learned throughout, I think, throughout the eight years was mentorship for both the mentee and the mentor was so, so important. And again, I, I mentioned this before, like, I think a lot of people came in, come into, came into the community thinking, you know, at one at one point, a lot of people were coming into the community that hadn't started a company yet or just had an idea, and so they were really h- hoping to like develop their idea and find and find um, uh, find co-founders. Anybody with the company was really looking, you know, for the most part, they're looking for customers, they're looking for investors, um, and of course, we we tried to to make that a part of the um, a part of the programming. Um, for them to really meet their first customers, for them to meet their co-founders, for them to meet their first customers, and for them to meet their first investors. Um, but the but the thing that I think came out of it that was so important to me, and what we really tried to double down on in in uh, with K fifty Ventures is 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 the the relationship between the founders themselves and creating that mentor and mentee relationship, um, which we do a lot of. Uh, we do one on ones. We have um, 
we have different groups for, for very particular types of businesses. For instance, we have a group, a learning group for verticalized healthcare companies. Um, and you have a verticalized healthcare company in, in uh, Brazil. Um, you have a verticalized healthcare company in the US. You have one that's doing something for women over 40. You have something doing, doing something for uh, COPD patients. And they can really learn from each other. Um, and it really builds those bonds and experiences. Um, and so we do a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of any, anything that we can do to build a better bond and experience between the founders. It, it basically takes out the need for the, the partner to be the main driving value add for the founder, which I, I think I have a lot of experience in, in, in building companies and investing in companies at the very early stage. But to say that I can support you know, 50 companies um, is, is, is ridiculous. Um, and I think that that's the, that's the problem that a lot of funds face as they grow up and their, you know, their experience, you know, more, um, better and better, um, from the founders and the portfolio gets bigger and bigger and the funds that they raise get bigger and bigger. It's like, it's very difficult for them to keep focusing on, on the, you know, investing into early stage founders. And I think for us, what we wanted to do and, and is really build a platform that could could help scale um, as we grew because we you know typically like funds want to stay very early or sorry they 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 want to stay early but then they end up raising a bunch of money and continue to invest bigger dollars into companies at later stages and that's because they can't really focus on the early stage anymore and so what we've tried to to build from the get go is is a platform and a model that that helps these founders. Um, at the early stage at scale. And, and the only thing that can do that is community. So like we, like Sahil said, we built community way before we built the fund. We were building it for eight years, learning everything that we could about, about that community. But really it was the power and numbers and the alignment of the different founders that then helped us build the fund. And we will continue to add value to these founders at scale, really through our portfolio companies, um, whether we're writing a 50K check or a million dollar check. So would you describe it as like a decentralized support system uh, for founders? It's the exact opposite of what an Andreessen would be, which is like a CAA, like, you know, verticalized support for very specific things. Is it, is it going in the opposite direction where you just, your, your community and your portfolio ends up becoming the support system for the rest of the portfolio? Is that, is that, is that the way that, you describe it? That is, that is 100% the way we're going. Um, and when we, we do some programming for certain things, um, for instance, fundraising and and PR for right now, um, and like telling your telling your story and narrative, um, and that that's going quite well. But again, we're we're not delivering. Um, we partner with a, a PR firm to basically develop this whole entire um, program. But the but the most interesting thing again. Uh, about the programming is not the advice that you're getting from the, from the, from the expert. It's actually the, the stories that you're hearing from the different folks in the program, which are all of our portfolio companies. And to get back to your point, I don't, that was not the goal for the, for the community from the, from the get go. The goal was just to support founders at the earliest stages. And I think we learned over time that the way in which you do that is through community. Um, and by being able to ha- like 
have the early investment early on. So, you know, as we grow our, our funds, um, hopefully, you know, these really incredible founders that want to go start something from scratch, like we'll, we'll be able to lead their, their pre-seed and their seed, um, so that they don't have to worry and spend what, what's the time that people spend in, in Lat, Latam raising money between uh, up until series A, I think it's like 60% of the time they're, they're fundraising. Um, that's bullshit. Like how do you solve a super hard problem, like giving access to financial services to the middle class um, for many millions of people when you're fundraising 60% of the time, you can't, you can't even build a product if you're doing that. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that's like the next, that's the next step for us. We started off with smaller checks and now we're, we're scaling into bigger checks so that we can be, um, we can be leading these, uh, these investments rather than, rather than waiting for a, for another fund to, to be able to lead. As you scale larger checks and, you know, you, obviously your AUM scales and you, you, you raise, you know, more capital to deploy. And you had you know, mentioned a second ago that that becomes a little bit of a challenge because you end up wanting to go later, but you've been able to, to stay early. What does the math look like? What is the math that you do when you look at, you know, an investment and you look at your equity stake that you need to have in order to kind of justify, you know, uh, you know, the classic kind of fund returner? Uh, can you walk us through the math that you do or the, maybe the yep. math that you communicate to your LPs? Yeah. So we're raising a $50 million fund now. Um, I don't think we'll, it'll be interesting to look back on this podcast in 10 years, but I, I don't think our fund size um, will go above 200 million if 150 million. Um, and the math around that is, uh, you know, 10% ownership at this point with a $50 million fund. Um, and I think that can easily be closer to 15%, um, with, a with a slightly bigger fund. Um, and right now we're only putting 30% of our, of our fund into follow on. Um, so typically most of our money is heavily invested at the, at the, at the earliest stage. And so, as, you know, as we continue to grow our, our fund size, um, what, what we'll, what I have, have communicated to LPs and, and I think what LPs want to see is that we'll continue to invest more capital into the companies that we've already invested in, um, instead of investing in more companies, um, or instead of investing in, um, uh, larger tickets at the very earliest stage. So I think one to two million dollars is probably the right amount of money that you want to be investing in, um, in a company. So if you look at that, one million dollars today, fifty million dollar fund, um, they're having to from a first check investment principle, they're having to fifty x. But typically, you're trying to get in around three to four million dollars into that into like the best performing companies, um, and so it's up to the um, the you know the founders to really execute and perform. Um, and the 
from a $50 million to a $200 million fund that instead of that two to $3 million extra and follow on um, going into a company at seed series A and maybe some in series B, um, we'll be able to follow it longer through the, through their, through their journey. But I, I typically like, and I think for these early stage funds, it makes more sense to be investing a lot of this money at the earliest stage, um, right as they're starting to figure out product market fit, um, while the valuations are still low and, and you're still, um, you're still able to get, you know, anywhere from a, a 10 X to we've, we've done a hundred X on, on one of our investments already in just in four years. So it's like, I, I think that that, that, that's what you're really going for is, is these kind of big outsized fund returners. I was reading a, a blog post from Fred Wilson today about uh, selling, you know, you've got buying, which is figuring out what you're going to buy and what you shouldn't buy. Right. You know, there's, and there's a lot of different strategies there. Uh, managing, which is the work that an investor does to manage the investment, you know, that might be doubling down on an existing investment and that can dramatically impact returns. But then there's selling. And, you know, this is, that's all about when to exit an investment and how. It's probably the hardest part of investing. How do you think about exiting, given that you invest so early and the time horizon is, is, is longer if you're coming in, you know, at ideation stage because you're investing in an amazing founder that has is has founder market fit, your time horizon is much lo- longer. So how do you gauge, um, you know, when you should be selling versus holding and, you know, and continuing to invest? Yeah. So for us, again, we're, we're typically, we're typically investing most of our money right after we see the company have like seeing product market fit. So that could be around the seed that could be around the a, um, and it could be at the B. Um, what we, what we typically, I'll, I'll give an example. So we, we had a portfolio company in our first fund. We invested, um, really at their seed. Um, and, they were just seeing some semblance of product market fit six to nine months later, they raise a series a now fund managers makes mistakes. We definitely made a mistake of not investing at the series a, it was like two, you know, it was our first fund. And I think it was probably our, um, you know, first time we had seen a follow on opportunity that quickly. Um, and had I, I think, you learn the most from your mistakes. And so I, 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 I've now, you know, anytime we're, we're seeing a company that's close to product market fit where we are watching and waiting, looking at data to really truly understand if, if, if the next, you know, iteration or even to invest before the round comes, um, to get, to get in money, um, as soon as possible, once we start to see that data come through. Um, and I think that that's what we do it as far as fund managers and managing. Um, I think we're pretty good at the buying part in terms of, you know, found, finding founders all around the world that are really great founders going after really great, um, you know, market opportunities on the selling front. Um, we, I think we got it right with this same exact company. So we missed it on the follow on, but on the selling side, they had gotten a, a, 
a follow-on investment at Series D for $1.5 billion. And at that point, we were 39x marked up cash on cash. So in our mind, I think as we've gone through this process and you know, we've, now we're in fund three, I think that's our whole entire value add to LPs, which is like, hey, we're going to get you back your principal as fast as possible. And then you're, we're going to be playing with house money to get 5x plus returns still. And so our, our fund one is at 4.8x net TVPI and 97% return. And we did that in fund one because of two things. One, we had a few companies, we got lucky and we had a few companies exit in probably the best time to exit in the last 10 years. Um, and then one one company, which is this company that offered a secondary at this one and a half billion dollar mark, and we're looking at the competition. So what we did as a process, and I, I would I would say every single investor should do this as a process when they're going into sell or even follow on, is I had a one team basically pitching to to buy, and one team we weren't going to buy. Um, but one team pitching to buy to basically stay in and one team pitching to sell, um, and had them both create memos. And we took those, you know, both to the investment committee to then determine what we wanted to do. And we eventually said sell because of one, we would have returned most of the principal to investors, which we thought was a really good thing, given it was November of, of 2021. Um, Competition was high. I think a lot of these companies that you invest in, competition looks so different from the time you invest when like no one's doing it and they're the first mover to a year and change later, um, where you know you're starting to see some things and people are starting to raise Series A's, and then three, four years later, you're raising your Series D, and there's a guy doing the same exact thing that you're doing for um, charging no money at a Series A. And so we started to see this competition. We also started to see their, their initial first product completely get eroded. We still believe in the company that they can you know, continue to... And they've done actually quite well. But the valuation, which is so high compared to the, to the revenue, um, that multiple, I, we just didn't feel good about it. Um, and so we, we ended up selling about 85% of our position. Um, and so that process has formed our uh, you know has informed our i would say our process that we would go through for the next one um for 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 selling it's interesting it's scrutinize the different sides of it you argue both sides and then you kind of let let that you know kind of tell you where to go uh it's, a, it's an interesting exercise i think internally to kind of flex your flex your kind of brain a little bit and and think about it, it sounds like you probably timed it pretty well because no one really knew 2022 was going to look like. And so I'm sure that that the, the valuation is, is off that $1.5 billion mark that it was, uh, you know, 2021, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. And now we do, we do a lot of this. I mean, it, it, not as formal of a process, but we, that, that process really informed our whole opinion on how to do follow on in general. Uh, most of the time, follow-on is being done by the the investor or the partner that did the last round 
um, and bring it to the investment committee. Um, now, now we typically have a, a different partner hop on for the follow on and say, okay, like, would you invest in this? You know, not having invested any money in the, in the previous, um, in the previous round. And so it, as investors, we, we typically try to, to have both that, um, that partner that believes in the founders and, and cause they've worked with them and they have that bias. Um, and the partner that has, you know, hopefully no bias and, and can, um, and create some really great conversations and create some really good questions that, that always come out of that, um, that lead you to, you know, the best, most informed decision. Hey there. You might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture-backed company. Well, I know firsthand, and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over $100 million in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup, and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top-tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. Shifting gears a little bit, at K50, you've you've done a lot of investments, you know, spread out geographically, right? Talk a little bit more about the perspective you see in terms of investing outside of the kind of classic markets. It seems like the last couple of years, the market has opened up. There's more opportunities around the globe. Latin America has been an area that you've doubled down quite a bit. But my understanding is that even in 2018, you started doing some investments in Africa. Talk a little bit more about how you've kind of expanded the range geographically of where you invest and, you know, what's driving the thesis around investing outside of those kind of traditional markets that most investors stick to. As far as the range of investing and, and kind of why, I, I think if, if you were to look at just the, the number of places that we invested in, some might say we, we aren't focused. Um, I think the, the two things for people to understand, um, both as founders and, and, as, and as investors, um, first of all, the problems that we're focused on and the themes that we're focused on, they're global issues. They, they exist in the US, they exist in LATAM, they exist in Africa, they exist in Southeast Asia. Access to credit sucks for anybody that doesn't have a credit score or has bad credit. It's really, really difficult to get access to a bank loan if anyone's ever done it before as a small business owner or as an individual. Um, and in a growth market or in an emerging market or in a market like the US. Um, the so that's one thing. The problems that we're focused on are very um, uh, similar. There's different things you have to be aware of in terms of regulation, in terms of distribution, in terms of um, in terms of the players. Um, so the execution is different, but the problems are are the same. Um, and so we often see models that pop up in China or in uh, Southeast Asia or in Africa that inform our decisions and what we're seeing in the U.S. or in other markets. Um, so that, that's, a, that's another piece. I think it works to our advantage. Um, 
Second thing, we have, we, when we tell this to founders all the time, we have two different types of checks that we write. One is a community check, um, which is up to 100K. Um, that's still at the same pre-seed seed, typically more towards pre-seed, um, where we'll write a smaller check into a company that we don't feel comfortable leading or co-leading, where we're getting you know a million dollar checks. Um, they go through the same exact or very similar process, I would say, in terms of how we're looking at the market opportunity. We still need to believe in the team. It's definitely, I, I, it's not spray and pray in that sense. It's very much like learning. Um, and we'd like these founders to be a part of our community again, and they get value add to the, they get a lot of value add from being a part of the community. That's where they take our smaller check. Um, and so we have invested in a lot of geographies that we don't have boots on the ground in. Right. And so it informs our opinion there. Um, we started investing in Latin America in fund one back in 2016 it was actually one of our first investments was in brazil our first our very first investment in fund one was in brazil i think it was like our maybe it was investment number two they've since exited um we're now actually looking at bringing that founder on as a venture partner which would be really cool um is in the education space um and we saw something very special about latin america that we didn't feel as comfortable about or didn't feel um, as moved by in the other markets that we were looking at. And I'll share what those are. One time zone is perfectly aligned with the U S two. um, We had a a couple of really great LPs and a couple of founders that we had already invested in, um, in our fund one and continued on through, through the, through the different funds. And so slowly but surely we would make, you know, we were investing smaller checks in most of the companies that we invested in, um, really community checks. Um, but we brought, you know, our, our partner now, Daniel Vasquez, who I, I think you know, um, who's really one of the leading, you know, he he created the leading top, you know, family office in in Latin America investing in in startups. Um, and so he had he had been investing in early stage companies in the region um, at the same time that we started and, you know, was an LP to begin with. And, you know, now is a, is a full, is a partner. Um, and the idea that there and what we have is our ambitions are, are to basically do what we did in Latam. So we have, you know, North of 40 companies we're leading deals. We've done a lot of investments with you guys at latitude. Um, and our aim is to do this in other markets. Um, and so we're looking at, uh, Southeast Asia, um, parts of India and parts of Africa is like, where do we want to go next? We'll continue to write, you know, smaller checks in these, in these geographies, unless we, unless we believe we, you know, we have a, um, you know, a venture partner that could, that could lead the deal. But for the most part, it's, it's, uh, these are community checks. Um, and we really just want to be this global, you know, we, we started off with a global community. We, you know, we started our first fund and and learned how to, to invest. Um, and we really want to be a global fund for mission driven founders with, you know, us is our hub and where we, 
you know, that's where the office is. That's where I'm based. Um, but we will bring on partners to be boots on the ground and really be, be what we call a dual citizen fund, you know, where we have roots in us, but we're building roots in these other, these other geographies where myself and everybody else on the investment committee know about the problems. They know the players they have and can answer, um, questions, um, that are the tough questions that, that, that need to be answered for us to make a great investment where it's not just like, okay, we have Brian, he's a partner. We never really see him. <laughs> um, he brings in a couple of really good deals every now and then. Um, it, it's, it's actually very, you know, foundational to our, to our firm and fund that we are an international group. So right now, half of our team is Latin American. I would sense that in the future, our team will continue to grow and become this kind of international global melting pot. How large is the team? We are eight, four in the, four, or, sorry, seven. We're four in the investment team. And then we're three um, operations community platform. And, and the, of the geographic distribution of the investments, uh, what percentage are in Latin America? Right now, it's a third. Across so the whole third, entire portfolio of 180. One third, and then and then the other two thirds, U.S. and then spread out amongst other countries. What does it What does it look like uh, in 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 the the remaining two thirds? To give you a better, I'll just go to the data because um, I don't have off the top of my head. So U.S. is 56 percent. We have a, a third in in Latam, um, and then 10 percent into the what we classify as, as other emerging markets. How important is kind of the valuation in that first check when you're coming in at pre-seed and seed? How often does the, the valuation get a little out of hand where you're like, oh, it's, it's, it's too much? Is, is that sometimes a sign that they're a company that's going to, you know, I think back to those investments that I passed on that were look crazy at the time and they weren't. Um, how, do you, how do you assess the importance of valuation uh, in that first check? Um, for a lead check, we are very ownership driven. Um, and we remain super disciplined around valuation. Um, which is why these community checks come in handy because we can still invest in companies that are raising at a 35 or 40 or 50 <laughs> Um, million dollar valuation, pre-seed, seed, second time, third time founder, what have you, um, in order for us to still be an investor and, 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 and be able to, to write up a, a bigger check when, when valuation and check size align. Um, but I'd say we're, we're very disciplined. We've typically been investing at, um, sub 10. So sub 10 and around 10% ownership is kind of your, your target. So kind of up to a million dollars. Five to 10% is our range. But I, the, the good part about being in this horrible market and, and there's not a lot of you know, venture funding going into growth stage companies is that there's a, the, the valuations have gotten a lot more realistic at the early stage where you know, in, 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 in Latam, for instance, like you, you would raise at sub five, 
um, even as a great founder, um, uh, for your first round and we're starting to see, I don't think we're starting to see sub five, but we're definitely seeing single digits even for second time founders. Yeah. Back in January, you tweeted about startups reaching, you know, unicorn valuations at their, you know, their seed round, uh, last year and how that kind of screamed froth. You also mentioned how the laws of physics were back in 2022. What are some signs of a flimsy and a solid valuation that founders should check in uh, their startups? I think you should be very confident that you can two to three X your valuation for the next round um, with reasonable multiples. So if you're going into a pre-seed with zero done and you're raising at 50, can you get to 150 by the seed? And is that going to be based on hype or is that going to be based on concrete, you know, math and multiples? I think a lot of people and, and you, you'll hear a ton of really great founders say, you know, we were, we were basing our, uh, we were basing our fundraising timeline and strategy on the market. And what was happening, you know, with other companies and what VCs were marking these things up to, they were not basing their, their, their strategy and timeline on, on reality. Um, and I think a lot of those founders had big, um, uh, and we're seeing it even in some of our own portfolio companies, um, where it was kind of like, and I told you so, um, where, where founders are raising at too high valuations and, and putting themselves in a bad spot for, for the next round. Um, and we're going to, we're going to continue to see pay to plays and, and companies getting term sheets pulled and, um, you know, founders losing their business because, uh, because they were shooting for valuations that were too high. I mean, it typically take, it should take 10 years to build a real business any business. Um, and in order to get to a billion dollar valuation in, you know, at the C that's that, that should sit, like something should be up there. <laughs> um, and so we saw 500 plus unicorns get born in 2021, something like that. Um, and I think a lot of those, a lot of those companies, um, will, will see, uh, we'll see a revert to the mean. We'll see us, we'll see some fail and we'll see some, you know, come down in, in valuation, but that doesn't mean that, you know, venture or tech are dead. It just means that, um, you know, we're seeing the same thing in, in the, on the IPO market, everyone got out of hand. Like it was not just private investors. It was public investors too. Um, where the, uh, you know, almost half of, of the companies that IPO'd in 2021 um, are worth, you know, less than half of the amount of money that they raised. That's insane. 2022 has definitely been a year of caution for venture capitalists, right? But you also argued recently that there's still a lot of money wanting to invest in LATAM. And, you know, you highlighted favorable demographics, strong digital adoption, and a drive to succeed among founders that is harder to find in Palo Alto or in New York. Could you talk a little bit about 
that scenario and especially about this drive to succeed that you see more in Latin America? Yeah. So I think, I mean, let's take it a little out of context, um, the, the quote, but what I, what I was trying to convey, um, I think it was a business insider. Um, what I was trying to convey to the, to the journalist was the, the founder that you find in LATAM, first of all, is going out and solving a problem for the masses, right? These are typically really tough problems. They're not sexy. Um, in order to in order to get the investors involved and in order to um, really deliver uh, you know the returns that all these VCs are looking for, you're you're taking a large, large, large leap of faith. And you know, founders are coming back from Stanford and Harvard and MIT to go and found a company in Latin America because that's where their roots are. And they're solving a problem that's so personal for them that it's that drive to succeed is not success for them to succeed as a founder as much as it is a drive to succeed for the betterment of their country and the region. And that I think is so important. People come to Palo Alto from Ukraine, Poland, even Latin America, and they go to build a company that they have zero passion about solving a particular problem for a a data company, you know, big data company that that exists to serve, you know, the Fortune 500 companies. If you ask them, um, you know, why they're doing this, it's much more from like, I am doing this because I want to become successful because then I can then go and do something for my country, my back home or my family or whatever it may be. And I want to create a legacy. What you're finding in Latam is like, the company is that legacy. That's what we try to invest in all across the world, even in the US. Are you solving a problem that you'd be, you know, whether you made money or not, you'd be so proud of that you're creating a legacy to really drive value for that many people? That's the most important metric. And it's, it's built into, you know, if you can help multiple million people in any sector, you're, you're most likely you're going to create a billion dollar business. And I think that's what's so interesting about LATAM and the founders. All the other stuff in terms of demographics, in terms of where we're at cycle, in terms of, you know, creating digital payment rails and, and, and e-commerce was the first. And how can we create more companies on top of that um, with embedded fintech and with healthcare and with all these other things in terms of like the opportunities that exist? That is so interesting from in terms of capital deserves to be there because there are opportunities that are that are going to create large financial outcomes. Um, and I think we're at the right point of the cycle where we're similar in, in the sense of like where China was when you know Alipay and, and WeChat Pay and and these things started to exist where there where there was infrastructure that started to exist where people could sto- go and start build new companies off of which I think it's just the right moment for Latin America, that founder piece, you find that in emerging markets. And it's super, super interesting because those are the only companies that are, I mean, most of the companies that we're investing in and most of the companies that we're seeing are, are building for 
you know, the 99%, um, which is, you know, our tagline, but we are starting to see some infrastructure level plays that are coming up like Pomelo, for instance, um, or Belvo. Um, again, these are, these, these companies though are, are, you know, democratizing access to financial services. Um, and I think that that's why these guys are ended up, you know, building these companies. Um, and it's that passion, like, and it's hard to find that in, in New York and, in in San Francisco. Well, just kind of wrapping up here, you know, you, you alluded to the thesis at, you know, K50, building a better future for the 99%. Uh, and you once wrote that you saw most VC firms focusing only on the 1% and that kind of, you know, you wanted to be more part of the solution and not part of the problem. Maybe you could share a, a, a publicly dis- disclosed investment you made recently uh, that you're excited about that's very early that, you know, you analyze kind of with that lens uh, a startup that's, you know, fitting such the ambitious goal of, of your firm. Cool. Um, yeah, you always have to have an enemy in any story, right? Um, so we picked the rest of the VC ecosystem to be our enemy, I guess. Maybe not the best path. Um, <clears throat> all in good fun. I, I think there's a lot of, I do think that there's a lot of really great funds out there. And, and I think we're seeing it with the, the fund managers becoming younger and younger that we are starting to see a revert, like a, um, we're starting to see more capital going into mission driven companies and I'm all for that. So I'll keep egging, egging people on so that more money comes into mission driven companies. Um, one company that was publicly disclosed, um, that we invested in that survey serving the 99% perfect, perfect fit is a company called Pandas. Um, they're based in Latin America. They're based in Colombia. Um, two really great founders. Um, again, both at McKinsey, um, for some reason, McKinsey, like it's not like I have a hard on for like ex consultants, but McKinsey in, uh, in Spain and McKinsey in Bogota are, are, are some of the, the best, talent is coming out of it the, the, both these offices um i don't know if i just gave away my my uh my insight but um these two founders marcos and rio rio's um as a in you know they met in spain and mckinsey marcos comes to trenta um and uh learned uh from luis he's actually a really good friend of luis luis convinces him to to uh, after he comes to visit him in Bogota, convinces him to, to come and, and camp out on his, on his couch, eventually become his roommate and, uh, join Trenta. And he says, you know what? I will do that, but I want to go start my own company. So he learned a lot from Trenta, from these small micro entrepreneurs. And if, for those of you on the, on the pod that don't know Trenta, really great company. Um, my partner is an investor, good friends of Luis. He's building something really great, um, basically building infrastructure for micro entrepreneurs to accept uh, payments, track their inventory, basically track their whole entire business. If you look at, think about it like QuickBooks for, for micro merchants. One of the things that they were trying to build in Trenta was the uh, B2B marketplace for these micro merchants. So as a merchant, you're th- talking about but somebody in Bogota who's selling um, maybe 
maybe 4,000 bucks a month, maybe a thousand bucks a month, maybe 500 bucks a month um, <clears throat> in goods. They don't have access to a high quality um, uh, inventory at, you know, on demand um, at good prices. They're typically similar to Rubana, which we saw similar to tool, which we saw there's a ton of different middlemen. And so with pandas, what they're trying to do and what Marco saw at Trento was let's build a B2B marketplace for these small and micro merchants um, that gives them access to uh, great goods at, at good prices. And so they, they uh, Rio's from China um, and uh, Marcos and Rio basically created what we, you know, now is almost like the Alibaba for, or LATAM, where any of these micro merchants can get their goods from China. They're focusing on electronics to begin with. So anything from a hairdryer to headphones um, and anything with electronics in it, um, where they actually import directly from, from China. And they're also starting to work with these large, large brands um, to be the marketplace um, where they won't even hold any inventory. Um, and they're working directly with thousands of of micro merchants um and they you know providing them uh credit providing them this really incredible marketplace um that they can source their inventory through at prices at you know 20 to 30 percent below what they were what they were doing before that like and then how does it make sense for the merchant like first of all they don't get access to credit this never happens secondly um that 20 to 30 percent uh, price reduction that goes directly to their bottom line. That means that they can take more money home. That means that they can expand their inventory and, and, and ex- potentially expand their business. Um, the there's, uh, I, I mean, micro, no matter if you're in the U S or in Latam or in China, um, SMBs are the powerhouse of the world. They, they deliver, you know, most of the GDP. Um, and in LATAM, um, this is how a lot of people make money. Um, so this is where they're starting. Um, and I'm really excited to see, you know, where they go next um, with their product. However, we have, you know, we have a lot of markets to get into. We're just in Colombia right now. Um, and we have a lot of, uh, a lot of people to buy electronics first and, and, you know, hopefully we can scale into, to other products as well, product categories. That's awesome. I met Marcos in, in Guatemala. Um, so it, it was the first time I heard about the company, but it seems like they're building a, a great business there. Um, well, thank you for making the time. Uh, it was, you know, fun to hang out in person a little bit. Uh, hopefully we, you know, our cross our paths cross again, but listen, thanks a lot for making the time and you know yeah, for man. sharing a little bit more about your perspective and and yeah, excited to continue to collaborate. I think we've got a lot of you know the fund you know over at Latitude, uh, you know which is led by Tommy, Marcial, Nayani, and Bruno. Uh, I think we have a lot of investments with you, and so hopefully we can continue to do that. Yeah, totally. No, and I know Adriel's in contact with with all of these guys, um, and I think we just need to build more connectivity across the. A firm, especially with like Ari, Ariel and, and Danny, who are more focused on Latam. Awesome, man. V- Let's vamos do it. Latam. All right. Vamos. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Ryan Bloomer. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.